So Psalm chapter 44 is where we're going to be. I'm going to make an attempt tonight, okay? Um, here's, here's the attempt I'm trying to make. Oh, first of all, you're not missing notes. I did not make any. Um, it takes me double the time to make notes than it does to write the sermon. I don't know why that is, but it just is. Um, and so I apologize. I'll be, I'll, I'm going to do my very best to speak slowly. I know I, can, I get excited and I start talking real fast, but I'll try to keep it tame tonight. And, uh, and we're just going to walk through this passage verse by verse. Um, and that's, that's my favorite way to, uh, to teach. And I'm going to do my best to do a little less um, preaching, a little more teaching this, uh, this evening. I make no promises because I get fired up and I can't help it. Um, so, Psalm chapter 44. Let's read that together. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's good. So, Psalm chapter 44, verse 1 says this, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days and the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win their land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. You have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbor, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so delighted that you have um, given us your word. Lord, that you have not only inspired it, but you have preserved it for us, Lord, that your church today would be able to to see the great things that you have accomplished. And so, Father, as we come to this text this evening, my prayer is that as we walk through it, God, that you would do a work in our hearts. Lord, that as we look at the Psalms, we can see the, the things that you have done, not only for the people in this day, but all the more for us today. And so, Father, we are thankful for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to come and to study it. Lord, I pray that it would sanctify us, that it would do a great work in our heart to conform us to the image of Christ. And, Lord, above all, that you would be honored. It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. It's an interesting psalm. 
Um, it's a little bit different than all the others. Most, most frequently when you come to a psalm where anything negative is happening, it's more likely than not Israel's fault. Um, they've done something. They've rebelled against God. They've kind of um, they've started uh, worshiping false gods and idols. And, and so when you get to this and you, and you see this, this, this chapter, this little phrase in here where it says... Um, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. I mean, it's an odd thing. Most every time you find a, 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 a psalm like this, it's normally that Israel has rebelled against God altogether and naturally he's disciplining, disciplining them or emptying his wrath on them justly. But it's a really different occasion here. Now, let me go ahead and tell you, historically, we don't know exactly when this happened. You know, a lot of Psalms, we can link them really, really closely to a moment in David's life or the author, but here we just can't do that. Uh, many people believe that that this was uh, something that happened in David's day, maybe in particular in the middle of a battle where they were winning, they were doing very well, and then all of a sudden kind of the, the, the tables turned. And you kind of watch them, instead of taking a quick victory, be pushed back, be, um, even be slaughtered. And, and so like when we look at this, um, I, I can't give you an exact moment. However, as I look at this passage, that's where I lean. I lean more toward this moment of, uh, of maybe a little loss in battle. David was not super familiar with loss in battle. I mean, can you imagine as he um, was considering these things? I mean, really, a loss in battle was a huge blow to him. And so when we walk through this passage, there's a couple things I want you to see, um, because ultimately this is about deliverance. Um, the first part, we see this remembrance of, deli- of, of deliverance. So verses 1 through 8 is this moment of remembrance. And remembrance is something so important in the Christian faith. Um, you know, I, I can think of moments in my life that I go back to um, that, I, that, that have kind of become an Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance for me, that I look back to to say, man, look at how God has worked. Um, let, I mean, you, know, you have those moments, perhaps, where you see God move in a mighty way, and you go back to them, and you say, man, that's such an encouraging moment. Perhaps when you're facing a difficult trial or tribulation, you go back to that, and you're encouraged by it, and it kind of gives you the strength to press on. And so what you have here in verses 1 through 8 is this moment of remembrance. And we're just going to walk through this verse by verse. So verse 1, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. So I love this verse because it almost points us back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is called the Shema. It's what, what the Israelite parents were supposed to do with their children. They're supposed to speak of the word, speak of all the things that God had done in them. And it even maybe refers back to all the feasts and festivals that Israel had. Every single one of their feasts and festivals was at its root a point of remembrance. So we talk about Passover. Passover is the moment where they realize and remember that God spared their only son because of the blood on the doorpost. And so the purpose of all these feasts and festivals is to give them a point of remembrance, to think back on the way that God had provided deliverance in the past. And so when we look at this, the first thing that you see here is a generation saying, we remember these things because we were told this by our fathers. Now, I would like to take a point of application here. Um, consider as parents what you are communicating to your children, to your grandchildren, about what God has done in your life by the way that you live. Now, the Israelites had a set thing they were to do. They were supposed to speak of the Scriptures as they rose and as they, as they laid down on their doorpost everywhere. They were supposed to be completely immersed and saturated in the Scriptures at all times. Now, when the people in this day say, we remember this, they remember it because the generation ahead of them was faithful to communicate it to them. 
Now, I am very thankful that I had God-fearing and honoring parents that told me the great things that God had accomplished, um, not only through the scriptures, but things that they had done, that God had done in their own life. And so when I look at this text and see this, it points to faithfulness from the previous generation. This is so crucial, so important. Imagine, if you will, what, what this psalm would look like if they hadn't heard from their fathers, if they hadn't been taught. There would be no remembrance. There would be nothing to push them forward to encourage them about what's coming their way. And so when they say, um, they say, oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you have performed in their days, in the days of old. This is a moment and a point of great encouragement to them. So the question then is, what are they remembering? Well, I'm convinced that they were remembering Canaan. Listen to the language you see throughout verse, uh, verses 1 through 8. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the people, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So the first thing that we can kind of consider is how God delivered them in the land of Canaan. So let's think about Canaan for, for a minute. Jericho. Jericho was one of the strangest battles of all time, wasn't it? I mean, consider this. You're in Jericho. You're kind of in your high walls, and you're seeing a nation march around. Can you imagine how confused you'd be? I mean, consider also the fact that apart from God intervening in Jericho, Jericho would not have fallen. Their walls would still be standing today. And so what you have here is this moment of considering, okay, God, you've done this in Jericho. And then also all throughout um, the book of Joshua, you see God deliver in, in, in most unique ways. Joshua, for instance, holds up his javelin. As long as his javelin's in the air, then the Israelites are just fighting like madmen. I mean, victory is sure, but as Joshua's arm lowers, then all of a sudden the, the enemy's able to fight back. They're remembering and considering these things as they're dealing with their present circumstances. They're remembering that, okay, how did we gain victory in Canaan? Well, we gained victory in Canaan only because God was actively involved. And I love this, Joshua 10 10, 24, 20, 25, um, there's this moment. It's a sweet moment for the Israelites. Uh, in Canaan, kings were gods. Like that's what they were considered to be. They weren't considered to be mere men. A king was a god. And so as uh, Joshua and Israel goes to the land and conquers, uh, th- they think they're killing gods. And even to the point where Joshua says, okay, I'm going to take these kings and he would bring them out in front of all their soldiers and he would allow their soldiers to walk through and place their foot on the neck of these kings. I mean, that's a moment, isn't it? That Israel is realizing these are mere men. These are mere men that the Lord has called, has called us to fight, battle, and win. And in that moment, you can imagine great boldness coming, couldn't you? I mean, as you're having your your foot on the neck of a king completely and totally under your authority, you can end him at any moment you so choose. Why would God do that? Why would Joshua, as as a ruler, as a conqueror, say, come put your foot on their neck? Because he was emboldening them. And in this moment, when they're considering, as, as, the, as the, this nation right now is going through various trials and tribulations, they remember, man, I remember when my father told me about his dad placing his foot on the neck of a king. God can do these things. He can deliver. And so, uh, secondly, we see in this remembrance is who it is that conquered Canaan. Who conquered Canaan? Was it Israel? And the answer is, I mean, yes, it absolutely was Israel. But I want you to look at some of the text here. Uh, so Psalm uh, 44.3. 
I love this. For not by their own sword did they win the land. Well, how did they do it? I mean, if it wasn't by their own sword, if it wasn't by their own might, how were they victorious? How were they able to take over a complete land? I mean, they took out kings and kings and kings and huge cities like Jericho. Listen to this language. For not by their own hand did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So how was Canaan delivered to Israel? By God's hand. And let me make abundantly clear, if it were not by God's hand, it would not have been accomplished. If God did not empower Israel, give them strength. I mean, I think back to that moment of Joshua standing with his javelin raised. And if it fell even for a moment, then Israel would begin to be overtaken by the enemy. And so as these people in this moment, as this, is, this psalm is being written, are considering, they're considering that moment that it is by God's mighty hand that we conquered Canaan. And I can imagine their remembrance as they're going to plead to the Lord later, you can do it again. Now, let me make a case for remembrance really quickly. We are quick to forget and slow to remember as a people in general. I mean, we remember the bad things. I can tell you every, I mean, hopefully not every, but I can tell you many negative things people have said about me. I can think of really negative moments that have happened in my life. I mean, hard moments. And I can can give you those probably pretty quickly. But I'm much more hard-pressed to give you the great ones. They're slower to my remembrance. I can remember... um, I can remember moments of great sorrow and great pain, but I kind of allow the moments of great victory to kind of wash over me slowly and I kind of move on. But friends, by God's grace, we each have this story. Um, And and to put it in a more modern day context, we have this story of great deliverance that God has done for us for our very souls. I mean, if nothing else, we can go to the moment where God regenerated our hearts and rescued us, can't we? So as anything comes, we can pause and say, by God's grace, we have victory. And our victory is not in uh, someone's sword. It's not in my own might that this has been accomplished, but it's in God's mighty hand. I love the language here because every single one of these things um, leads us to Jesus even. So in verse 3, at the very end of that verse, it says, But your right hand, who today sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you? Christ does. And whose arm is, is not too short to save? And what, what did he use to rescue and redeem us? Well, it's Christ. And then you see, in the light of your face, he is the light of the world, isn't he? And as I look at this passage, and I'm sure they consider this, and even to the point where, who was it that led the king's army? Not the king's army, the Lord's army. Who was the commander of the Lord's army mentioned in Joshua 6? Friends, that was Christ. He is the commander of the Lord's army. He is Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of the army. And so as we look at this passage, who was it that conquered Canaan? Why? It was the commander of the Lord's army. It was Christ. And so as we consider this, notice this as well. Why did he do it? Why did God conquer Canaan? Why did the commander of the Lord's army, Christ, conquer Canaan for Israel? Look at this last sentence in verse 3. For he delighted in them. Why? I mean, this is like a ragtag bunch of kids that were slaves in Egypt. I mean, they really, there was nothing to attract God to these people. Why would he delight in them? Why would he have any vestment into them? And the simple reason is because he chose to delight in them. I mean, isn't that good that the Israelites were delighted in simply because God said, I'm going to delight myself in Israel. I'm going to deliver them time and time again. I'm going to make sure they're cared for and I'm going to make sure they're loved. And I'm going to make sure that they conquer the land. Why? Because I have attached my name to theirs. 
He's going to make sure that they conquer that land. He's going to do it because he delights in them. And friends, as a church, God delights in us. Do you know that his name is attached to ours? We say that we're followers of Christ. That means that with, with who we are and how we live is a representation upon him. And praise be to God, that's the case. I love the fact that we have a jealous God, don't you? There are many that take offense to that. But the fact that I have a jealous God, he's jealous for his fame, he's jealous for his name, secures that he is going to care deeply for me. He's rescued and redeemed me, and his greatest desire is that his name is made much of here in this earth. And so he cares uniquely for his church. He cares uniquely for those he delights in. So I praise God that I have a jealous God. He's jealous for me as an individual. He's jealous for you as the church. And he's jealous for his name and his glory. And those two things are linked. What a joy, isn't it? What comfort we can find that God is actively working together for his glory. And he has so chosen to use his church for his purposes. I like that concept. And so they remember all these things. They remembered that um, God provided in Canaan, that as they conquered Canaan, they remembered that it was not by their own sword, even this point of confessing, it is not by our own sword, it's not by our own arm that we're saved, but it was completely and totally your work, which you accomplished, and it was only because you delighted in us. Now, what I love in this is remembering gives way to trust. This is such a true thing. Look at verse 4 through 8. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob, decree it. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. So the very first thing you see, one of my favorite things in this passage, is this confession of inability. So in verse 6, you see, For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. Remembrance gives way to trust. I think this is so true in our day. When we remember the great things that God has accomplished for us, quickly we should realize that why it's never been us in the first place. So I'm going to go ahead and confess, Lord, it's not by anything that I can do. It's not by my sword. It's not my, by my bow that I can save us from this battle. Only through your mighty hand can this be accomplished. And friends, we need to find ourselves here more frequently. We've got to find ourselves this place where we realize this is like, I can't do this. But guys, we're, we're Americans. We pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and we get stuff done, right? And that's, that's how we act. I mean, the fact, I mean, I'm telling you, I think we're more competent than we, than we need to be. Praise be to God for the times that I can say, Lord, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm, I don't have the authority or the power to do this, but God, your Holy Spirit in me does. I mean, we, we think we're great. And I'm going to be honest, praise be to God. He, he's done a great work in our hearts and he's rescued and redeemed us and he's working on us, conforming us into the image of Jesus. But friends, if you think that's not the work of the Spirit and that's somehow you, then we've missed the picture here. And so this moment of realization for, for this author of this psalm is this moment of saying, God, I can't do this. I'm looking back on all the things that you've done and time and time again you've shown it's not Israel, it's you. Every victory we have is wrapped up in you. And so this man, as he's writing, is, is convinced the first thing he needs to do is say, God, I can't do this. It's not by my sword, it's not by my bow. And we don't know the exact author of this, it's a couple of guys probably, but I would have to imagine if they're pinning this, they're very likely great soldiers that have been fighting that very day. And this moment of saying, you know, I'm going to go to war tomorrow. 
And the first thing I need to confess to, to, to God, the first thing I need to confess to those around me is I am completely incapable of gaining this victory on my own. And so this confession is such a beautiful thing. It, it really does reveal the trust that they have. And then they recognize the source. The first thing we see here is ordain salvation for Jacob. Ordain. I love this language. To ordain, to decree. What he's saying is if you don't demand that this happen, if you're not intricately involved in this, salvation can't be had. And I love this this recognition of God's sovereignty. And then secondly, we see, look at this language, through you, through your name. I mean, this is just this overwhelming recognition that God is the one who must accomplish this. And I know I may be focusing on this really heavily, but the reason is, guys, we have a great task ahead of us. You, you know, we think about the Great Commission, and, and we must remember that it, the Great Commission is to be carried out by God's people through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And if we're not dependent on that power, we'll attempt to do it in our own power and means, and we will fail time and time again. I mean, think about how many ways we have come up to share the gospel with people, how many different um, methods, and those things are all helpful because I'm convinced that believing comes through hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. We use the scripture, the tools that God has provided for evangelism and mission, and they'll be brought about because that's the way that God has so chosen to move. Amen? And so we see this time and time again, this, this idea of through you and this idea of through your name. And then lastly, we see he ascribes worth and praise. Look at verse 8. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. I love the location of this verse. You'd almost expect it to be after a verse that says, and you gave the victory, right? Like you gave the victory, you gave us the win here. So because of that, we will boast in you continually, and we will give thanks to your name always. That's not where it is. It's in the midst of the battle. It's even before he even makes an ask. He's not even pleading with God for anything at this point. All he's doing is making a recognition that regardless of what takes place here, we're going to boast in you continually. We're going to boast in the loss. We're going to boast in the defeat. We're going to boast in the pain, trials, and tribulations. But we're going to boast in you continually because you are our good and faithful God. It reminds me of the fiery furnace, doesn't it? He says to the king, Our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we'll burn. Man, that's sweet faithfulness, isn't it? And I pray for that type of faithfulness, that regardless of whether God actually does deliver, regardless of what he does in my life, my cry will be, I will boast in you continually. I will forever give thanks to your name. How well do you think we do in that department? I mean, when was the last time we paused? And, 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 I, and I confess to you that I find myself here quite frequently. I mean, I can go through an entire day. I can shamefully probably far more than that without pausing and thanking God for, for even just Christ and the gospel. I mean, we, we almost take the gospel for granted now. We've become so saturated with it that we never stop to think that God really did rescue ruined sinners to provide for them an eternal resting place with him and enjoying him eternally. If that's not motive to praise God continually and boast in him, what is? Am I alone here? Am I the only one who forgets to thank the Lord for what he's accomplished for me? Am I the only one who, when, when, when we go through trials and tribulations, the first thing that we do is gripe and complain? I mean, I, I'm, I'll be honest, full confession, I'm quick to complain. 
And, and by God's grace, I'm reminded time and time again that any complaint is an assault against God's reign in my life. I mean, it's ultimately saying, God, I don't care why you're putting me through this. I don't want this. And we're quick to do that. We're quick to complain and we're slow to give thanks. And even in the midst of this very difficult situation that we're about to look at, these, guys, these, these, these people who are pinning this psalm are praising and thanking God, even to the point where they say, I'm boasting in you continually. Boasting means that we are, we are just overwhelmed with and we are proud of our God. Proud of our God that even in, in, in difficult trials and tribulations, my first instinct is to boast in God for the great things that he's accomplished. And friends, I, I mean, I've gone through some difficult things in my life. Um, and rarely in those difficult moments that I think, I'm going to boast in the great God of my salvation. And so this, this moment of, of recognition, this moment of praise and, and ascribing worth is a beautiful picture of how we should be 24-7. Now, let's look at the state, shall we? Really, where are these people? What's happening in their life? Let's look at um, verse 9. But you have rejected us. And disgraced us, and you have not gone out with your armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have given spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of your neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, in the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Can we agree that they're in a rough spot? I mean, they're in a rough spot. Let's just look at some of the language that, that they use. Rejected, they're plundered, they're scattered, they're scorned, they're disgraced. This is God's nation of Israel. And I do like to point out that even amidst this, that they are continually boasting and praising the God of their salvation. It's an incredible thing to consider that even amidst all of this, I mean, being rejected, and they don't feel rejected by certain individuals in their society. Ultimately, they're feeling rejected by God despite their faithfulness, as we'll see in a moment. And that's a hard place to be. I mean, it's one thing when we go through difficult situations and we know that it's because of our enemy. We know it's because someone has sinned against us. But the fact that the nation is being faithful and they feel like they have been rejected by God is a painful place to be at. Amen? It's difficult. And we quickly find ourselves here anytime difficulty comes, despite the fact that God may be using a difficult situation to do a great work. And so, just to consider a couple of those things. Now, why did this come? I mean, why, why is it that they're going through this? You know, like I mentioned previously, the idea almost should flow really quickly that, man, Israel has done something incredibly sinful. Perhaps they're worshiping Baal again. Perhaps their king has gone off the rails. I mean, there's no telling. I mean, you look at any of the history that we find in uh, the books of history from Scripture. I mean, you, you name something, Israel's done it. I mean, they, they were a a fickle people. They rebelled time and time again and God exiled them. And this is even before that. And so why are they going through this? Look at this in verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. Can I confess to you the first time I read that? I was like, yeah, probably not. I mean, it just seems like Israel has a habit of this and they really do. But I really believe that in this moment, they really were being faithful. Look at the language here. They have a laughing stock among all the peoples. I mean, 
amidst their faithfulness, they are, they are just overwhelmed. They're trying to figure out what it is. And so in verse 17, all this has come upon us, although we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. They're even in this moment remembering the covenant that God provided for them. The fact that the first part of this is remembrance very likely does mean that they really are walking with the Lord in this time. Because time and time again, the nation of Israel, when they rebelled, they forgot all the great things that God had done for them. And so the fact that the writer is considering all the great ways that God has delivered points again to the fact that they really are genuinely being faithful. Listen to this in verse 18. Our, hearts, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Notice the first three word, four, four words of verse 22. Yet for your sake. In this day, it's almost as if the nation of Israel is being persecuted and attacked for their faithfulness. Now Christians... The New Testament understood exactly what that was like. I mean, to confess Christ in that day was often to be put to the sword instantly, or worse yet, the cross. And so when we look at this, I mean, we very rarely do we consider that Israel was very likely persecuted for the fact that they served a, the same God that we do. And so when you look at this and we say they've been faithful, consider a nation that says there is one God and we serve him and he loves us. He delights in us amongst a pagan nation. I mean, because ultimately what you're saying is your God's fake. It doesn't exist. Now, if you're a polytheist, it's fine if you have a different God because you can just kind of throw them in with the pantheon, right? You just kind of add them to whatever list you'd so choose. But when the nation of Israel arrives and they're being faithful, they are claiming that there is but one God. And so they attack by necessity, every other God that any nation claims, they mock him even to an extent. Because there is one God, and he is the Lord of Israel. And so I can imagine even these nations that really are vested in their idols come against Israel and really wage passionate war against them because they're fighting just to simply believe that there is some deity other than God. And so the, I truly believe the nation of Israel here is being uh, persecuted for your sake, for being faithful. We're going to come back and look at that verse in a moment because it's an echo. We'll see it in the New Testament as well. But let's look at the plea here. So out of all of this, we're kind of getting to the point of the plea. So in verse 23 through 26, we see this. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. One of the great things about this psalm is he always had the, the psalmist has a clear direction. He's always considering this idea of deliverance. He's remembering the ways that God has delivered in the past. He's considering why he is where he is. And ultimately, he's always moving toward this ask that he has from God, this plea that he has. And I love the plea. Rise up, come to our aid, come to our help. Help us for the sake of your steadfast love. 
the sake of your steadfast love, why is it that God should deliver the nation of Israel? Although, yes, it seems they've been faithful. They're still sinners. They still have rejected God by their actions time and time again. Why is it necessary for God, who has linked his name to the nation of Israel, to rescue them? Why does it matter? Well, it matters because his steadfast love is on the line. This is why it's a joy to have a jealous God. He's jealous for his glory. And the reason that he acts so joyously toward us time and time again is because we are the recipients of that steadfast love. And I love the way this man prays. How often do we pray, God, would you, would you do a great work for your namesake? Would you do a great work for your steadfast love? Would you do a great work so that all around us may know that you are God alone? And I love the way this man prays because he's going through this difficult situation. He's being, the, the whole nation's going through trial and tribulation. They're going through a loss and victory that they're not very familiar with in this day. And the first cry, the, the number one thing that he wants to see is God rise up, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And this confesses so much about what this man believes. He knows first and foremost that there is no one who can rescue them but God. They they have, been, they have looked through this moment of remembrance, looking through how Joshua was delivered and, and how the nation conquered Canaan. I bet they even looked back all the way to Exodus, considering the fact that they were enslaved and God brought them out. God delivered them with a mighty outstretched hand. And as they consider that, his first thing is not to run to the king of Israel, who was a great king and a great soldier. No. His first instinct was to plead to the God of Israel, rescue us for the sake of your steadfast love. And friends, we would be wise to pray this way. To pray in a way that is first and foremost centered on the glory of God. Because ultimately what this man is praying for, he is praying that God would make much of his steadfast love in the nation of Israel. That when everyone walked away from this battle, from this very difficult situation, that they would be saying, how great is the steadfast love of God? That even in the midst of our failures, even in the midst of this loss in battle, even to the point where it was certain that we would be defeated, that God would deliver them and they could walk away and say it is only because of his steadfast love and because he has so chosen to delight in us that we are delivered. What a sweet recognition that would be, wouldn't it? When we stop to consider that by God's hand, we are delivered from everything. And whether we are delivered here as Christians on the earth or not, we will ultimately be delivered and spend eternity with him. Now let's talk about the echo. So turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. You see there are two verses here that are mentioned in Romans chapter 8. And I believe that this psalm speaks to a certain moment in history. This moment that Israel has been kind of taken aback by a bit of a defeat. But I think it also looks forward to a future moment. And when you come to this passage, I mean, it's easy to gloss over. It makes sense when we read it, but it makes all the more when we consider it in light of this psalm. So Romans chapter 8, in particularly looking at verses, um, let's start in verse 33. It says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, 
For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Isn't this interesting? Imagine Paul. Now understand who Paul is. I mean, I know that we all know who Paul is, but Paul very likely had the entirety of the Old Testament memorized. It was actually a requirement at bare minimum that you had the Psalms memorized. And that would have been done by an early age, probably around the age of 10, 11, in that doesn't that make you feel bad? I mean, it just makes me feel bad. Um, that, that he would have the entirety of the Psalms memorized by 10 or 11 years old. I mean, that's just wildly impressive. And so as he pins this, he's not pinning it ignorantly. He's not citing it from some random location. He knows the Psalm, very likely even running through his mind as he writes these words. Now, I want you to notice a couple things that we can find here. The first things that we find are what is the church is currently going through. And remember, the church are those who have devoted themselves faithfully to God in this day to be called a Christian, very likely meant your death. There weren't many false converts. Does that make sense? I mean, you know, in, in the South, we, you, know, you, you come to church, you're a Christian. That's not the case. Um, placing faith in Jesus and following him faithfully, that makes you a Christian. And so... In this day, you have these people who are, who are sacrificing their home. They're sacrificing all these situations. You could even say that they're probably rejected by society. They're constantly plundered by the people. Not only that, they've been scattered by persecution. They're scorned, to say the least. And they are some of the most disgraced people ever. They find themselves meeting in catacombs just to gather with other believers safely. I mean, they're everything that we find in Psalm 44 of what's happening in Israel. They're dealing with these exact same things. They're going through these incredibly difficult times and they're being completely faithful, even to the point of death. If that's not faithfulness, friends, I I really don't know what is. And so when Paul is writing this, I think genuinely what he's considering is this moment that he sees in Psalm 44. And he's remembering even as he writes, notice this, he's considering, well, who can bring a charge against us? What, 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 What have we done? I love, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Good luck. Because it is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. So Paul is even taking this moment to stop and remember what Christ has accomplished for him. In the exact same way that the psalmist, as as he writes, is considering the ways that God has delivered Canaan to the Israelites by his right hand, by his long arm, and by the light of his face. Paul is considering this as he writes these words. And that's when he writes this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? No, that'll fail. Distress? That can't do it. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness or sword? No, none of these things can separate us from the love of God. And I love what they're pleading for in Psalm 44. Or would you rescue us according to your steadfast love? Would you rescue and redeem us for your steadfast love? And I imagine as Paul pins this, he's thinking to himself, Oh Lord, how you delivered. Oh, how you have rescued and redeemed. Even to the point where now, in this day, because of Christ's finished work, there's nothing that can separate us from that great love. Not a thing. Not not persecution, not sword, not nakedness. Nothing can deliver us from this. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, I like to think that Psalm 44 ended with a victory. 
It's hard for me not to consider that. And I can imagine the people of God as they walk away from this great difficulty, as they consider the fact that they were probably one battle away from complete and total loss that God delivered. And I can imagine the nation of Israel running away, just singing hallelujahs for days. Praise be to the God of steadfast love, for he has rescued and redeemed us. His long arm, his right hand, and the light of his face has rescued us once again. Isn't that a sweet place to be? That by God's grace we have victory. But friends, Psalm 44 is a shadow that gives away to the real. It points us to a better victory. As we pause in the midst of the deepest possible pain, in the midst of the greatest victories even, we pause to consider that those things, all of the victories that we have are rooted in the finished work of Christ. Then we walk away remembering, man, praise be to God, nothing can separate me from his love. He's made a way possible that whether someone um, persecutes me here on the earth or they so desire to take my life by God's grace, I will dwell with him eternally. Nothing will be able to separate me from his love. And friends, as we consider this, my prayer is that in the midst of whatever is going on in life, we would pause to do three things at all times. That we would remember the great ways that God has delivered us. Friends, as the church, no one has more reason for remembrance than us. No one has more reason to look back to what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And not only just there, but also in our individual lives because he works individually in our hearts, doesn't he? And perhaps even remember the moments just recently that God has been actively sanctifying you. And if you don't have those moments, that breaks my heart. Please, please search and find whether you are in Christ at all. Because he is not a God who forgets those who are his. He works. And as we remember those things, that we would remember them and it would motivate us to trust. This is the pattern that we see, guys. If we remember time and time again how God has provided, how can we not trust him? Beth and I were were sitting around our our fireplace when it was cold, you know, like those three days. Um, And uh, and we were laughing. I mean, just genuinely laughing because we were almost, we were like talking about all the difficulties in church planting and we began to laugh at it because time and time again, God has provided and it it became difficult for us. Beth even said, it's hard for me not to trust him. Like in our, in our hearts, our natural inclination is not to trust God. That's the, what happened at the fall. We kind of bent away from him, but by his grace and by all the great and mighty things that he's done, those of us who are Christians, it's difficult for us not to trust him, isn't it? Because how faithful is he? How faithful is he? And so as we remember that we would lead to trust regardless of what state these things come from, because friends, nine times out of ten, difficulties in our life are a result of our own sin. They are. They're a result from us rebelling against God. And by his grace, he leads us to repentance. I love Romans uh, chapter 2. It's by his kindness that we are led to repentance. That even in that, we can remember the great things that God has done for us. That even when we rebelled against him, he expresses his great kindness in giving us the gift of repentance. And if it is because he's putting us through various trials or tribulations that we trust him, that they're only for a little while and they're only if necessary, and the purpose is always to conform you into the image of Christ. And lastly, they would always remember that in every moment Nothing, nothing is able to separate us from his love. He has purchased for us his great love in Christ. And friends, there is not anything under the sun or above it that can hinder that great love from us, from our enjoyment forevermore.